Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 8.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. gospel reading this morning is Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 through 5. At the time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm not Pastor Sarah. Pastor Sarah asked me if I was willing to do the sermon of one of the two weeks she was gone, and I said, I'll take the second one, because I figured the first one lowers the bar. (laughs) Then I don't have to reach up to the level of Sarah. And then the district superintendent day of the sermon last week, (laughs) I was sort of like, that was really uncool. I should have gone first. Um, So I apologize in advance. I'm neither Sarah nor nor Dennis. Everything I really needed to know, I learned in Sunday school, with apologies to Robert Fulham. Given my 20 years of formal education and $100,000 in student loan debt, it's frankly a little sad that I learned everything I really needed to know in Sunday school. Yet, it remains true. That isn't to say that I haven't learned a lot of valuable things since Sunday school, like turning off the circuit breaker before trying to replace a wall socket. That is a good thing to know, and I learned that through experience. Also, don't eat sushi from a gas station. (laughs) That's, again, a life experience. Finally, telling your daughter or your wife that they have really big feet is not always interpreted as the compliment that it was intended to be. I didn't learn any of those things in Sunday school. I kind of wish I had. My life would have been less adventurous if I did. But I stand by my original statement. Everything I really needed to know, I learned first in Sunday school. In Matthew chapter 18, the disciples are having an argument. Which one of us is the greatest, the disciples demand to know. You know they were all thinking, this guy. Jesus, who's the greatest? Matthew, Matthew. Jesus responds in a way the disciples probably found irritating. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? What is it about children that makes it easier to enter the kingdom of heaven? I can see the disciples thinking to themselves, size, we know the gate to the kingdom of heaven is narrow. It could be size. I don't think that's what it was. 
Is it because they're younger, so they've had less chance to sin? That's possible. But then again, some of us are more apt to sin than others. I have always considered myself fairly advanced for my age. (laughs) So I'm guessing that what Jesus was talking about in this passage is children's ability to accept things at face value. Kids seeing accept things as true. Grown-ups, not so much. For instance, now we've had a dispute since the early morning service. Who knows what the 30-second rule is? Who knows what the five-second rule is? See, that's an Alaska East Coast thing. In Alaska, we got 30 seconds to eat it. Uh, in the East Coast, you only get five. When you learn the five-second rule as a kid, you're like, cool. Who, do, who doesn't know what the five-second rule is? Anybody? If it falls on the ground, you've got five seconds to eat it before it gets dirty, right? That's, that's just a rule. Now, if you tell that to a child, the child is happy as can be. I'm like, excellent, tasty. If you tell it to an adult who does not know the five-second rule, they will give you a look like, oh, Brigitte, touched your shoe. I'm not eating that. If you tell a child, tag, you're it. Game on. They're happy as can be. Don't try it with adults. When you tag a grown-up and say, tag, you're it, they give you that look of like, wait a minute, what is it? And why are you saying I'm it? We like to think that as we get older, we get wiser. But Matthew 18 seems to contradict that assumption. There is no doubt in my mind That if I were to have a theological debate with my younger self, that I would wrap circles around my younger self. I took biblical law in law school. When I was a kid, I thought Leviticus was a bad word you used when you were really mad. (laughs) Think about it. Livid, cuss. (laughs) Nothing. Wow. (laughs) But my faith was pure when I was a kid. So in that vein, and in no particular order or importance, here are ten things that I learned while I was in Sunday school. Number one, Jesus loves me. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. And when you're a kid, you just accept that. That pretty much sums up a huge part of Christian theology. The epistles of Paul are pretty much all reduced to that one thing. And everything else we learn in church and in life should be viewed through that filter, that one lens. If we learned as children and keep believing as adults, Jesus loves me, then everything else seems to work out just fine. Number two, Elmer's glue and cottage cheese are effectively the exact same thing. (laughs) It's true, think about it. Now, some of you are going to go home, and some of you are probably doing it right now on your phone, like, wait a minute, what's the Now they claim it's not true. But ask yourself on the bottle, look at the bottle, what's on the bottle? The little blue thing. It's a cow. Why is it a cow? Because it's made out of milk and wheat, which is what? Cottage cheese. It's paste. Number three, churches use plastic eggs for a reason. Every once in a while, a parent, a well-meaning guy, maybe from Alaska, We'll try to convince the church leadership that real eggs would be more authentic for the Easter egg hunt. I mean, seriously, plastic eggs? What's fun about plastic eggs? 
So the youth group gets together and they dye the eggs, and it's great, it's terrific. And then the youth group have an opportunity, they hide the eggs, and it's fun, it's great. Only, you aren't totally sure how many eggs you dyed. Some are always broken during the boiling. Didn't that Oberg kid break one or two? And you're pretty sure that the kids found all the eggs and everything is great until sometime in late June (laughs) when somebody moves a piece of furniture to vacuum and boom, stink bomb. And then you're back to using plastic eggs. Number four, Jesus calmed the storm. I grew up in rural Alaska on the coast in a fishing village, and to us, this is a very powerful, important message. It meant a lot to me as a kid. It meant a lot to our community. Um, for fishermen, for commercial fishermen, storms kill people, and that's just part of life. Uh, every year, we would bless our boats uh, at the beginning of this season because we realized that there was a fairly good chance that if no one from our community was going to die, there would be someone in one of the communities nearby who would lose their life fishing. And so to know that Jesus was a fisherman, and to know, secondly, that Jesus could stop the storm was hugely important to me as a child. Three of the four Gospels contain this story. Matthew and Luke merely state that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, but Mark tells us how. He says, Jesus said, peace, be still. In Hebrew, shalom. When I was a child, I thought Jesus was just talking to the ocean. And I accepted without question that at Jesus' command, the ocean and the waves were silenced, sort of like magic. But now, I'm not certain that Jesus wasn't actually speaking to the disciples when he said it. Perhaps he was talking to me. How often in our own lives do we need to stop and listen to the rebuke, or is it a blessing, shalom, which in Hebrew literally translates to abiding peace. It's not just a lack of war or peace and quiet. It's abiding peace. It's that peace that that the Bible describes as surpassing all understanding. It is something much more profound. In Isaiah, Jesus is referred to as Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus states, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. As a child, I was afraid of drowning. As an adult, I'm worried about a different storm. What are the storms in your life? Family, sickness, bills, anger, despair. Remember, when the storm is raging and it feels like we're about to sink, Jesus is in the boat with us. Ask him, and he will give you shalom. He will silence the storm. Number five, and this is important. Please don't ever forget this. Nobody, not Pastor Sarah, not the bishop, not the district superintendent Dennis, not J.R. Sanders, not Linda, not the choir, not even Dr. Rollinson, knows how to pronounce Mahershalalalash Hashbaz. 
That's a fact. Number six, it's okay to argue with the teacher. How often are we told in life, especially as children, don't you talk back to me because I told you so? How many people have been told because I told you so? How many people have said it? Yes, <laughs> every parent in the, and every parent says, I'm never going to say that when I'm a parent. And then you're in the circumstance, and Kendra looks at you and says, why should I zip my coat? Because I told you so. And you go lie down. Now, I'm a lawyer. I may have only gotten my degree in 1995, but I've been a lawyer pretty much since I was born. I was born to argue. Ask anyone on the SPPRC committee. So when I was a kid, I loved the stories in the Bible where the people argued. And there are a lot of them. Think about it. Abraham did it when he's discussing with God the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes, wait a minute. Wait. What if there are 50 good people in Sodom and Gomorrah? You going to kill them too? God says, okay, if there are 50 good people, I'm not going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham goes, well, yeah, but what if there aren't 50? What if there are five less than 50? For the sake of five people, you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, okay, if there are 45 people, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Look this up. Look it up. It's in Genesis. This argument happens. So Abraham says, well, okay, if there's not 45, what if there are only 20? God says, okay, if there are 20 good people, I won't destroy it. Abraham says, well, far be it for me to ask God, but what if there are only 10? I love that story. I live that story. Ask my parents. Moses was a great arguer. God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and rescue my people, bring them back. Moses is like, well, where's Egypt? God says, I'll lead you, I'll guide you, don't worry about it. What will I say? I'm not a good talker. There's evidence in the Bible that Moses stuttered. So that's a good excuse. I'm not a good talker. I don't speak well. Nobody's going to listen to me. I'll tell you what to say, Moses. It'll be all right. Well, who do I say sent me? It's a beautiful argument. Now, ultimately, God ends the argument by saying what? Because I told you so. Sure. <laughs> Look it up. Read the Bible story. That is exactly what he says. Do it because I said so. But he entertains the argument. Jonah did it. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jacob actually physically wrestled with God and became Israel, which means I wrestled with God. Peter argues with Jesus throughout the Gospels. He keeps saying, well, you're wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And you know what? Jesus was okay with it. God is okay with it. This is one of the most important lessons I've ever had in my life. It's okay to argue. It's okay to disagree. It's how we learn and it's how we engage. My wife and I argue.
Yes, God. <laughs> Everybody else heard that too, right? My wife and I argue a lot because we can. We're both lawyers. We're trained to do it. I argue with my daughter. She's going to be a lawyer. I argue with my parents, and that's okay. We can only truly argue with those we love. My wife taught me early in our marriage that anger is okay. Indifference is not. DJ's family argues a lot. They get mad a lot. Her, her aunt is here. She's sitting there going, yes, yes, we do. My family didn't when I was growing up. We were sullen. When you got mad in my family, you didn't argue, you didn't talk about it. You went to another room and sulked. That's where I grew up. I didn't argue. Well, that's not going to work with a wife who grew up arguing. DJ explained to me that very early in our relationship. I got mad, so I went to my room. And I was reading. I was minding my own business, and I was perfectly happy. <laughs> DJ comes in and says, you're mad at me. No, I'm not. <laughs> David, you're obviously mad at me. What's wrong? Not mad at you. You are mad at me, David. What's the problem? Yes, I'm mad at you. Good. <laughs> Indifference is not okay. There have been times in my life when I've been angry with God. I've argued with him and wrestled with him. And I mean really, really angry. Things happen in your lives and you get angry at God. And some of us are like, well, I can't be angry at God. He's, he's God. It's okay to argue with God. He's big enough. He's got big shoulders. He can take it. Why? Because of the first thing I learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me. He understands. I can argue with my fellow church members, SPRC committee, <laughs> because we love each other. Remember, it's okay to argue with your Sunday school teacher. Just remember that in order for an argument to have any benefit, you always have to start and end with love. Number seven, this little light of mine, try it again, this little light of mine, I've always hated that song. Hated it. Loved the message, though. Anyone who knows me knows that I live by this mantra, probably to the sorrow of my family members and most of my friends. Some of you who don't know me may have experienced or heard about the weirdo dressed as a chicken and directing traffic for the Crozet Elementary Walk to School Day. That was me. <clears throat> Unfortunately for my seventh grade daughter, the photo was on the front page of the Daily Progress. My daughter's response, quote, just what every teenage daughter wants, Dad. A picture of her father in the paper dressed as a giant chicken. I assume she might have been speaking sarcastically, but I'm not certain. In the Bible, the prophets are continually criticized for being weird. One of my favorite examples is King David. King David's wife was horribly embarrassed. Does anybody know why? Why? Yeah, he was dancing naked. <laughs> they win back the Ark of the Covenant. That's a big deal. And David strips down and runs through Jerusalem dancing and singing. He was the king, dancing naked. Kendra, that's worse than a chicken suit. 
David's wife did what any reasonable family member, including a teenage daughter, might do under those circumstances. She mocked him. This is a quote. This is a look at it in your Bible. How glorious was the king of Israel today. She even calls him a buffoon. The Bible doesn't say it explicitly, but I'm fairly certain that she rolled her eyes at him. David's response, quote, I will both play and make myself meaner than I have done. I'm going to do worse than that. And I will be little in my own eyes, and with the handmaid of whom thou speakest, I shall appear more glorious. Translation, I'm going to let my light shine. Don't put it under a bushel. Sometimes we are called to be buffoons for God. Let's face it, as Christians, we aren't normal. We're not. Many of us get one day off during the week. Maybe you get two. How do we spend most of that time? At church. Many of the people in this room will spend (laughs) most of their day-to-day either at the church or doing church-related things. 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning after a hard week of work, where are the Palmers? Where? They're at the food pantry. All the time. Making sure the food is ready to be distributed. There's a snowstorm in Crozet. Virtually everyone in the Commonwealth of Virginia is hunkered down inside their homes, keeping warm, drinking hot cocoa, and watching Newsplex coverage of Snowmageddon. Where's J.R. Sanders along with most of the trustees? Shoveling the snow at the church so we can go to church service the next morning and we'll be there. Dog days of summer in Virginia. I'm from Alaska. 80 degrees is too hot. 102 degrees, 90% humidity is Armageddon. It's summer vacation. Where are our youth? Well, they're obviously at the Crozet Pool, right? No, no, they're inside playing video games. They're in Impact Richmond. During the day, they're unplugging toilets, cleaning up garbage, doing construction work, and at night, they're sleeping in a stinky sleeping bag on the floor. Or maybe they're in Central America. That isn't normal behavior, ladies and gentlemen. It's nuts. The world thinks we're nuts. And let's face it, we probably are. Amen? Amen. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Number eight, it's more fun when everybody attends. Hit the next one. Go back, hit the next one. Which is better? Go to the next one. That's not fun. And it's not us. Because this little light of mine. Number nine, self-explanatory. And this song I do love. He's got the whole world in his hand. Say it with me. He's got the whole world. That was weak. I heard the choir. I didn't hear any of you. Say it loudly. He's got the whole world in his hands. I love that one. Number ten, finally. And this will offend some of you. Read it. God cheats. Okay, maybe that's too strong. God sometimes changes the rules. Recently, my pastor, Jim Depkin, posted on Facebook a simple but profound proclamation. God wins. 
And that's pretty much the same thing. So why do I say God cheats? Let's look at the evidence. The Bible is full of it. The Egyptians have chased the Hebrew nation to the banks of the Red Sea. They've got an army, they've got chariots, they've got swords, and more people than the Hebrews. The Hebrews are trapped. They are all going to die. Except at the last minute, God parts the Red Sea and the Hebrews walk across dry land. The Egyptians look at each other and go, all right, and they follow. But then God collapses the water back into the void and the Egyptian army gets wiped out. Don't you think the Egyptians are sitting there, the ones who stayed on shore going, wait a minute, that, that's not fair. It's cheating. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah's response from my Sunday school class? I'm not going to Nineveh, it's hot there and they don't like me. So he books. He goes the absolute opposite direction. Anybody know where Nineveh is? It's still there. It's in Iraq. It's right on the Euphrates River. He's on the Mediterranean coast. God tells you to go east. Where does he go? West. He hops a boat on the Phoenician boat. God's like, okay, well, that's not going to work. Sends a storm. Okay, that's not really cheating. Storms happen, right? And so the people on the boat determined that it was Jonah that's causing it. And they throw him off the boat. Problem solved. Jonah figures, well, I got out of it. Now I'm dead. So God does what? Sends a whale. A big fish is what the Bible said, but it's a whale. Swallows Jonah. Swims around the Horn of Africa. All the way around the continent. Goes up the Euphrates River and barfs. Jonah onto the beach. <laughs> when I read that as a child, I was quite certain God cheats. <laughs> Daniel gets thrown into a pit filled with angry, hungry lions. That really should be the end of the story. It should be a briefer chapter. What happens when you get thrown into a pit of angry, hungry lions? Daniel Tartar. But God sends an angel into the pit with David, and he protects him throughout the night. Jesus gets crucified. That should end the story. The disciples stay with... No. No, the disciples deny that they even know who he is. They abandon him and run off, scatter the four winds. That should end the movement. The group is gone. Shut off the lights. But not so fast. Somehow on the third day, we don't know how, Jesus comes back stronger than ever. I said at the earlier morning church, and I believe it, that sounds like a Schwarzenegger film. Maybe, maybe Bruce Willis. He comes back stronger than ever. And suddenly the disciples get it. They come back. 300 years later, Rome, which was at the time, and probably historically still is, the strongest empire the world has ever known. 300 years later, they're gone. Christianity, by the same token, has grown from 2,000 people to covering almost all of Europe, North Africa, and a pretty good chunk of the Middle East. 2,000 years later, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. God wins. Yes, sometimes he has to change the rules midstream. 
But the lesson I learned when I was a kid is that the end of the story is a happy ending. I have many times in my life looked at what was happening and thought, okay, how are you going to get me out of this one? But God has always found a way. If I hadn't met God as a child, I think I might look at all the good things that have happened to me in my life, all the times I've dodged a bullet, whether metaphorically or, yes, literally, and say, well, that was lucky. Or even worse, wow, I am really good. But fortunately, I learned as a child, it's not me. It's God. I hate watered-down-for-TV versions of the Bible. I hate VeggieTales. God's stories are not boring. They're not watered down. They're not rated G. If you looked at the Bible from a let's ban all the bad books perspective, the Bible would be out. The Bible is just like life. It's scary. It's hard. It's dirty. And terrible things happen. But the end of the story is a happy ending. As dark as it gets, as broken as things may seem to be, remember, God has already told us the ending, and it's a happy one. But how? As an adult, I could not begin to tell you. But the 12-year-old Sunday school student has an easy answer. God cheats, and he wins for all of us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Please make us like children. Make us to look at the world and to look at you and to look at each other the way a child does. Bring us to your love and help us stay there for the remainder of our lives, Lord, until we meet you in person and see you in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.